0: Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 8 verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I guess you already sat down. I'm Tom. Welcome uh, to the Leawood Campus of Christ Community. We're so glad you're here today. I hope you're having a good summer. Um, one thing I love is sunrises and sunsets. How about you? It's just one of my favorite parts of life. And if I'm honest, every day I wake up, I take the sun for granted. How about you? You know, all of us assume we bank our lives that even behind that dark, cloudy day, that pouring rain, that intense snow, whatever it is, that the light is still there. We all take it for granted, right? But have you ever thought about what would happen if the sun stopped shining? You ever thought about that? Well, there's a fascinating article in Discovery, August 2019, actually, that raises that question. What would happen if the sun disappeared? And there is this intense, chilling description of our world. Let me give you just a little sampling of that. First of all, these scientists say there'd be total darkness in eight minutes. I guess that's how long it takes for light to get to the sun. Then, quote, within a few days, however, the temperature would begin to drop, and any humans left on the planet's surface, that's you and me, would die soon after. Within two months, the ocean's surface would completely freeze over. But it'd take another thousand years for our seas to freeze solid from top to bottom. By then, however, they write, the atmosphere would collapse, radiation would seep in, and the earth would be an inhospitable wasteland drifting aimlessly through space. Doesn't that encourage you this morning? That's really intense, isn't it? I've just never read anything like that. If the sun stopped shining, our earth would be this dark, lifeless, inhabited planet. But it is this backdrop, this metaphor of sun and light where our text takes us this morning. Here we encounter one of the most important truths of the universe, a truth that is the bedrock of reality, and that is this, without Jesus, the light of the world, we are in darkness. This is the bold truth Jesus proclaims as he is confronted by the religious aristocracy of the first century. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 8. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're newer to the Bible. Now, as a church family, we are exploring the gospel of John. And I've said often through the series, this is the most read book and translated book in human history. It's truly a place of extraordinary brilliance. We've entitled this series, Signs, because the literary framework, or at least part of it, the structure, is it's built around seven signs. In our text, we're going to explore today the sign of life, that is, of Jesus being the light of the world. And we're gonna zero in primarily on verse 12. And we're gonna discover in verse 12 three transforming realities. So this is how the text is unpacked. First, Jesus gives us a bold truth claim. On the heels of that, a gracious invitation, and then he finishes with this hopeful promise. Okay, so this is where the text takes us. So look with me in verse 12, if you would, and as we dive into it, let's set the context. In chapter 7, the Gospel writer John tells us Jesus is in Jerusalem. It is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, or often called the Feast of Booze. The biggest thing to grasp for us as listeners and readers of the sacred text is that this is a grand celebration, kind of like the 4th of July in one sense, right, that we've just done. It's the Jewish people of a nation remembering together The 40 years of their wilderness wanderings and God's miraculous protection and care and provision for them. So it's a time of celebration. And during this feast in Jerusalem, there was a party, in a sense, that went late into the night. And to do that, there were four huge lamps that would be lit in the temple's outer court. And this symbolizes the pillar of fire, if you remember, that guided God's people in the wilderness. Now, keep that light imagery in mind, particularly as Jesus, who speaks in this moment, pulls that from the backdrop, okay? So keep that in mind. In chapter 7, if you've looked earlier, Jesus speaks about living water that quenches human spiritual thirst. Let me just say a couple words here because the context is important. Then at the beginning of chapter 8, if you notice in your text... We have the story of the woman caught in adultery. And on our website, Caleb Jenkins does a brilliant job uh, describing why this particular text is not in the original text. So you might want to read that more, okay? So just, we're skipping over that for reasons. It's a great text. The story probably happened. I won't go into all those details. Caleb does a brilliant job explaining textual criticism, which is a very important discipline many of us engage in as we unpack the text. Okay. So let me just, first of all, point out In verse 12, not to be pedantic, but to connect you, in verse 12, there is a connection to what has gone before, right? This tells us, this word again, that we are to read this context following chapter 7, verse 52. 52 and 8 to 12 are put together in the original text. So when we look at the end of chapter 7, the religious leaders are questioning Jesus. And this is the intense dialogue. Who is this uneducated Galilean? Right? this carpenter, this workman is the, the literal text, from Nazareth. Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Or is he a devil from hell itself, deceiving God's people? So this is the context in which our text emerges. It's a contentious one. So first of all, Jesus makes a bold truth claim. Look at me at verse 12. Let's press into it. Again, notice that marker. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, Jesus, in this context, boldly proclaims He is the light of the world. Now, let's slow down a bit and reflect on these words. They are really massive, aren't they? And let's remember, as students of history and religion and the text, that the metaphor of light often appears in many ancient religions. So again, John draws from ancient religions and Judaism and writes against the the Old Testament backdrop of Judaism. Uh, And John emphasizes the metaphor of light in his gospel. I want you to see that. And by calling himself the light of the world, Jesus does as well. Jesus was brilliant and understood many ancient religions. And here he is in the Jerusalem temple. So what's going on? Jesus is claiming to be the new temple that new meeting place between God and humans. And it is against this massive truth claim, if true, it has massive implications. And all his listeners are picking up on that, okay? John has already, again, included the metaphor of light as a major building block, if you remember, in the prologue, right? Ascribing the eternal Logos, which is a Greek idea, to the Messiah, to Jesus' incarnation, right? And in John chapter one verse nine, John describes Jesus coming to earth, the Logos, as what? He's already said this: the true light which enlightens everyone. Okay, so I want you just to grasp that John is walking lock and step with the Old Testament writers. All through John, the Old Testament imagery emerges. Okay, we've said that before. We'll continue as we unpack John. For example, the metaphor of light is often used to describe the Messiah in the Old Testament. Give me just a couple of examples. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, right? The prophet Isaiah, all over Isaiah, but a couple, one Isaiah 49.6, describes the Messiah as a light to the nations, or in chapter 9, verse 2, as a light that's shining in the darkness. Okay, so this is very common language to his Jewish listeners. Okay, ready? So Jesus is here in verse 12, like the sun... He is the source and the sustenance of life itself. And Jesus, by making this statement, is connecting something really important from Torah, from Genesis 1, 1, 1-3, right? Where God, the creator, in all his glory, says, let there be light, and there was light. So the one who said in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light, is now standing in their midst. He is the creator of light. He is the source of all goodness of all truth and beauty, of all spiritual and material reality. This is what Jesus is saying. You get this? No wonder they're freaking out, the religious leaders. This is massive claims. And uh, in verse 12, if you look at it, it's basically what he's saying. You really want to know who I am? Let me put it this way <laughs> I am the light of the world. Now, notice the language I am not just a light, I am not just the light of Israel. I am the light. I am the constellation of human history. I am not just one prophet or one of the hosts and myriads of spiritual luminaries in this crowded constellation of human history and religion. I am the luminary. Just, just pick up what his listeners must have thought. He's saying, I'm the light. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist for a long time, uh, once he came to faith in Jesus, captures this brilliantly in the weight of glory. And this is what Lewis says. I just love this because this is what Jesus is saying. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe, notice his metaphor, it, that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, right? But by it, I see what? Everything else. This is what Jesus is saying here. No wonder his listeners, his Jewish Devout religious listeners are freaking out. Right? So, when we stop to think about this metaphor of light in the physical world, right? Uh, we understand, all of us intuitively, that we, without light, we can't see anything. I don't know if you've ever been in total darkness. You ever been into a cave? You know, I have when the light's gone off. Let me tell you, don't forget that moment. It's eerie, it's frightening, it's terrifying. I was reminded of this truth recently. It wasn't total darkness, y'all, but it was the most darkness I've been in in a long time. Uh, My bride Liz and I spent a week in Utah, uh, which is awesome, uh, going to Zion and Bryce National Parks. If you've never been there, they're incredibly beautiful. They're beautiful in the day, but what I love most is standing on the rim of Bryce and other places at night. Bless you. If you are... A stargazer. If you love astronomy, this is the place to go. People come from all over the world to watch the stars there. And we were there when the Milky Way was bursting forth in the southwestern sky at 3 a.m. And yes, Liz and I got up to see it. It was so stunning, right? But when we walked to that place where we were going to watch the stars, the billions of stars, and we couldn't see our hand in front of us. It was the perfect conditions for stargazing, right? But on that dark night, I was reminded again of this truth that only light can push back darkness. Only light. In the dark of night, isn't it true? We can't see where we're going. In the dark, we feel deeply lost. In the dark, we grope around to find our way. And without light, we simply cannot see. What is true what is good and what is beautiful. This is the spiritual reality that Jesus paints on the canvas of time and space, right in front of their eyes. And they hear Jesus' shocking truth claim, these religious leaders bluntly tell them, look at verse 13. He basically say, What you claim is not true, Jesus, and why? Because the Old Testament, Torah, required corroborating witnesses. He said, you don't have witnesses. Your testimony is not valid. And then he goes, yeah, I'm a witness and my father's a witness. But he points to his origin. You can look more at that in his relationship with the Heavenly Father. That's the focus. But this sets off this more intense dialogue with the religious leaders. And I want you to notice in verse 25, you remember, if you've studied the Gospel of John, John tells us in 20:31, chapter 2031 the purpose of his book, that you may know who Jesus is and believe in him. And here you have the explicit question, okay? I mean, the brilliance of John. Do you see it? Right in the text, there's this explicit statement that guides his whole book trajectory. Do you see it? And explicitly, they say it. Verse 25, who are you? That's the big question, isn't it? For all of John, from the beginning to end. Eugene Peterson, as he often does in The Message, says it beautifully in more common English. He frames it like this. Just who are you anyway? And let me just add a little more common language to English. Who do you think you are? Now, after more dialogue in chapter 8 builds to a crescendo. We're going to see more of that next week, so don't miss that. But it builds to a crescendo. Yes, there's some belief, but... People pick up stones and they want to kill them. More on that next week. So here in verse 12, first, notice how it's laid out. First, there's a bold truth claim. But right on the heels of that, next, there's this reality of an ex- a gracious invitation. Jesus says here in verse 12, notice, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Every word is really important, but will have the light of life. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. Jesus asserts the only way out of darkness is to follow the light. And the good news is that there is a way out of darkness. (laughs) Jesus' light is available, notice the text, to everyone. Notice, to all who follow me, whoever follows me. That is to become his disciple. Those who follow and obey him and abide in deepening intimacy with him. That is what Jesus is describing. And again, the gospel writer Matthew captures Jesus giving more texture to this. And what we often call here at Christ's community the great invitation, Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30, Jesus says, all right, come to me. All who are wearing heavy linen, I will give you rest. Rest is the picture of Genesis, of the creation life that we were designed to live, the life we long to live. Only in Jesus can that be the case. Only can he push out the darkness, right? Isn't that amazing? How do we do that? We take his yoke, and that's a picture of apprenticeship, and we learn from him. This is the picture that we are given here in different language. Jesus is saying, this is the path of discipleship. It's the path of walking in the light, and only when we do that can darkness be pushed aside. So Jesus is the light of the world, and he's welcoming to himself all who will become his faithful followers, who will in submission and obedience take up his yoke and learn from him how to live their lives, their entire lives, every aspect of their lives, as Jesus would if he were him. That is the mission here. That is the welcome. Of course, Jesus welcomes curious seekers, and we see that in the Gospels. But he is looking for all in followers. Only when we become disciples to Jesus Will the darkness in our world, in our minds, in our hearts, our bodies, be pushed back by the light? Only in the light of a long obedience in the same direction can we walk. Notice Jesus says, walk in darkness, but walk in the light. Now, in our text, I want you to see this. This is something we must not miss, dear friends. Jesus speaks not merely of recognizing or seeing the light, but walking in the light. This is a deep Jewish wisdom framework here. In other words, hear me carefully, we can see the light. We can know a lot about the light and yet not follow or walk in the light. Now, over the years, um, I have become, I'll be very transparent here, uh, an increasing fan of country music. I hope you can still listen to me after that. I do resonate with its very down to earth, raw realities, right? Broken lives and broken worlds. The songs they sing are often sad. The lives they live are often even sadder. For example, until someone shared with me recently, I knew nothing about Hank Williams. Maybe you're a great fan of Hank. But recently, uh, I was drawn by his story shared with me. And when you study his life, he had this interest in light. Yet the darkness of his life overwhelmed him. Did you know, maybe you know this, Hank Williams wrote one of the most familiar, uplifting, light-filled gospel songs. I promise you I won't sing it, but I'll give you a couple words. You know it. I wondered so aimless. Life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. I have little doubt Hank Williams sincerely meant what he wrote. But the history of his life tells us that most likely he was totally drunk when he wrote that song. Hank Williams spent most of his life drunk. He had a physical ailment that created pain in his life, almost since birth, so he lived in constant pain. Can you imagine how hard that would be? And this led, again, with other factors to intense alcoholism and morphine abuse and other very destructive behaviors to himself, his family, and and people around him. It's a tragically thing. Do you know he died at age 29? Isn't that sad? He died in the back of his car, surrounded and littered by beer cans and unfinished songs. And the question I ask is, did he just see the light? Or did he walk in the light? Only our good and gracious and merciful God knows. But it does remind me from this text, doesn't it? It takes it from the first century to your life and mine, that the religious leaders encountered Jesus in carnational reality. They saw the light up close, and they still didn't follow the light or walk in the light. And may I suggest to you, as I study this text this week, this truth grabbed me, and it challenges my life. Perhaps one of the greatest perils to Tom, or to you, is that we can see the light, but not really walk in the light. Here in verse 12, Jesus makes this bold claim and then a gracious invitation, but notice how beautiful this text ends. It's a hopeful promise. Jesus offers a hopeful promise. Look at me at verse 12. He says, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a wonderful promise we are given here that the darkness of evil in our broken world and our own hearts is not the final word. That's an amen in a broken world of almost hopelessness and cynicism, isn't it? Jesus is the one who died on the Roman cross, the one who John describes here in John 8 as the one lifted up, you'll notice that. He became an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine, the one who bodily raised from the dead, defeating death forever. This Jesus is the light, who as an act of pure grace defeats the darkness and gives the opportunity for each of us to experience the light, to embrace the light, to walk in the light, and that darkness does not have to control our lives. And Jesus will describe in John 10.10 that he is the light and life, and only in him can we have life abundantly known for eternity. We walk in the light, though, not only as individuals, but as a local church community of apprentices of Jesus that are indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Walking in the light is not merely an individual enterprise, it is a collective one in local church community. Uh, writing later with these words clearly in mind, the same writer, John, writes in an epistle called the First Epistle of John. And we read these words in 1 John 5-7. through This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him or intimacy with him, we walk in what? Darkness. And we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now there's much here and we don't have time to unpack this, but when we walk in the light, We have fellowship with one another. There's a horizontal dynamic as well as a vertical one with God, right? So on our own, we are no match for the darkness. Only the light of the world of Jesus is. So are we walking in the light? Let's press into that for just a moment in application. Are we walking in the light? A few years ago, maybe you remember this, I think it was two or three years ago, on a sunny summer summer day here in Kansas City, we experienced a solar, a total solar eclipse. You remember that? I'll never forget this because sometimes they're partial, but this was a biggie. And the idea of a solar eclipse, you know, is when the moon eclipses the sun, it comes between the sun right, and the earth and obscures the bright intensity of the sun. That's what an eclipse means. I remember standing outside our office, our made-to-flourish office with some colleagues, and we're observing out there the sun slowly dimming, and it was increasingly being eclipsed, and it was the eeriest feeling to be in the middle of the day. Maybe you experienced that and feel like it was early dawn or late dusk. And I remember, because I hadn't experienced this many times in my life, I remember the air beginning to cool around me. (laughs) And I remember the birds stopped chirping. It was a weird moment. But a solar eclipse reminds us how the light can be eclipsed in our own life. What eclipses the light of the world in our own life? or in our community? When in our lives, your life and mine, what hinders our apprenticeship with Jesus? Our darkening life. Is there a deepening intimacy with him or a wholehearted devotion to him? What hinders that? How can the light be shrouded in our life? Let me suggest some things that hinder the light to shine deeply in our life, our relationships, in our community. It may be a root of bitterness or a spirit of unforgiveness. The New Testament writers describe it in the Holy Spirit language of grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. And maybe in your own life, a deep disappointment with God or with the church or a shattered dream or an unanswered prayer, these can eclipse the light. It may be a suffocating sense of guilt or shame from a past failure or a broken relationship. It may be an enslaving addiction or a besetting sin or struggle in your life. It may be some fear in your life right now. Maybe it's in this cultural moment. There's a lot of things to fear. And we have the choice to live in fear or trust God that he's sovereign. It may be disordered loves in your life. It may be a distracted life, an overly busy, hurried life. These can all eclipse the light. And the darkness in our hearts is given greater potency when we try to dismiss it, ignore it, or hide it. One of our great eclipsing tendencies, isn't this true, to hide our failures, our shame, our guilt, our struggles, is to not let the light of gospel grace and truth shine on it each day. And to not allow other followers of Jesus who are in community with us to be that healing conduit of light in our lives. Think with me for a moment. Would you just, a couple questions, and if you are continuing in the form.life journal, I encourage you to write a couple of these questions down to reflect on this week. Where are you allowing darkness of guilt, shame, fear, anger, worry, bitterness, to shroud the light of Jesus' truth and grace in your life and in your relationships? I'd love for you to write that down this week and begin to reflect on that in prayer. What is eclipsing the light in your life? Where are you walking in darkness instead of light? Where am I? And when you realize what the Spirit of God is speaking to you, will you then in repentance and transparency and trust bring that out into the light of Jesus' healing grace? 1 John 1, 5-7 reminds us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So are we walking in the light? But there's another question that I think we should ask. How are we, are we reflecting that light? How are we reflecting that light? See, Jesus declared in the scriptures, he is not only the light of the world, but us as his disciples would be his light to a dark world. That we would reflect his light to a dark world. Jesus describes this in the strongest language in Matthew 5, in the most famous sermon he ever gave that we have recorded. Matthew 5, these are Jesus' words. You are what? The light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Literally, the imperative is shine your light. So that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying to us, not just as individuals, that's important, but together, as the local church, that we together shine as light. You know, one of the great services at Christ's community that reminds us that is our Christmas Eve candlelight and silent night services. I love that because it's such a visual reminder when we light candles together in this dark space, right? One light starts and when the whole sanctuary is filled with candles. It shows our collective luminosity to a dark world. But we also shine Jesus' light individually. I'd like to press into that in our application a bit. Notice Jesus doesn't say you might be the light of the world. You are in creation and redemption light. That is your identity in Christ, in gospel truth. And that means individually, wherever we go, in all that we do, in everything we say, in every attitude we express, and with everyone we meet, Paul describes us as ambassadors for Jesus. Each one of us is light to others. Wherever God has called us in our Monday worlds, where we live, work, play, study, at school, wherever. So the question for us is, how do we shine our light? Primarily, Jesus says, by what we do. Yes, our words matter. Actions and attitudes matter. But notice he says, as people see your good works, and here this Greek text word means not just works of spiritual charity. That is good. It is what we do every day, paid or unpaid. It is our work, where God calls many of us, right, to spend the majority of our time. Makes sense, doesn't it? So the primary focus of good works here is the paid and unpaid work we do every day in serving others and loving our neighbors. Where is God calling you to reflect his light this week? You know how he's called you, paid, unpaid, whatever your calling is, whatever your service whatever your stage of life, to love your neighbor and be a faithful presence for God. Where is that? That's the primary way we shine our light. But there is another way we shine our light as well that I think we often miss. And that is in our public square. Both, as we've said recently, we are citizens of God's kingdom and of our nation. And we are called, as his people, to be salt and light. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. Let me just unpack a little bit of that. To be light, individually and collectively, as the church in the world, we are dual citizens. And each one of us, right, have opportunities and stewardships to bring God's ideas, his moral ways, and persuasion in public discourse. Now again, we do that with Christ-likeness. <laughs> let me highlight that with love and respect. But we have a role in here. It might mean for some pursuing public office or supporting that as individuals or public service of some kind. And let me say this again because I think it needs to be said. And in our democracy, that means we are privileged, incredibly privileged, to be involved. And that means that we are to be informed and to vote. Think about this. What difference would it make in having more just laws, having more shalom, more protection for the vulnerable and marginalized if Christians voted? Of course, I hear. What matters most is Chain's heart. Of course. But changing laws and public policy matter, too. Edmund Burke spoke across time, timeless wisdom. The 18th century Brit, he said this, all it takes for evil to triumph is what? For good people to do nothing. And when it's darkest in a culture, light shines brightest. So we are to be his light wherever we are, whoever we're with, in our workplaces, in our families, our neighborhoods, and yes, in the public square. Jesus says to each of us, I am the light of the world. And you and I are living and breathing witness to the world around you of the goodness of God and the hopeful transformation, transformation of the gospel. Will we walk in the light? Will we reflect the light? Will our lights brightly shine in our dark world? I remember as a little boy in Sunday school, uh, Mrs. Johnson, my third grade teacher, she was awesome. And she would gather us around and sing this little song. It's the most profound song imaginable. He, she reminded each of us that we were light, that we were to walk in the light and shine that light to our friends at school, <laughs> in our families. Do you remember that song? "This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine." I'm going to let it shine. This is the light of mine. There are no more profound words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the light of the world in the midst of the darkness of our own lives, our sin, our brokenness, that you are the light of the world that is so desperately needed in the world, in a world of often hopelessness and violence and cynicism and despair. Lord, help us to be that light to shine your light with love and grace and truth in this moment, in our cultural moment, in our world, for your glory and your praise. God's people said, amen.